From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us today. TonyPerkins.com is the website, so you can get this and every program on demand at your convenience. Also, encourage you to download the Stand Firm app. Anywhere you get your apps, type in Stand Firm so you can get connected to all FRC's resources directly to your phone. Big program for you today. A little later, Senator Josh Hawley will join us and talk to us about what's happening in the Senate on the infrastructure bill. Is it actually an infrastructure bill? He says maybe not. We'll talk about it. Also, New York City has a new COVID policy, a vaccine passport to just do regular things, uh, going to theaters, going to restaurants. Now you have to have papers with you. What What's going to happen? What's the response going to be in New York? We'll talk about that a little later in the program as well. In addition, a Rhode Island teacher has become something of a whistleblower about critical race theory. We will talk to her later in the program. But first, yesterday, in remarks to reporters at the White House, President Biden hailed companies like Walmart and Disney for requiring their employees to get vaccinated. And he chided state officials who are passing laws or signing orders against such mandates, including governors like Ron DeSantis in Florida and Governor Greg Abbott in Texas. I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way of the people who are trying to do the right thing. Well, Governor DeSantis responded to President Biden earlier today, and here's what he had to say. If you're trying to deny kids a proper in-person education, I'm going to stand in your way and I'm going to stand up for the kids in Florida. If you're trying to restrict people, impose mandates, if you're trying to ruin their jobs and their livelihoods and their small business, if you are trying to lock people down, I am standing in your way and I'm standing for the people of Florida. With me now to talk about the Biden administration's stance towards state governors is U.S. Representative Andy Biggs, who serves the 5th Congressional District in Arizona, which is one state among several whose governors have issued executive orders prohibiting vaccine passports or requirements. And he is also the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. Congressman Biggs, thanks for joining us today. Joseph, good to be with you. Good to have you. You heard the exchange, the, the comments by President Biden yesterday, uh, Governor DeSantis' response today. What's your take on uh, what the federal government should be doing, what states should be doing right now? Well, first of all, uh, I thought President Biden's comments were the uh, most anti-federalist direct comments we've heard uh, lately. I mean, it's it happens all the time, but this was very direct. And I love what Pre uh, Governor DeSantis said when he said, look, I'm going to stand in your way. He is protecting his state. His state has sovereignty, not the federal government in these types of issues. And so he's making a case, uh, and I think it's the right case to make. I think Governor Abbott has, Governor Deuce, some, some of the others have as well. They've been standing in the way of the federal government, which is trying to basically uh, do a, a neo-fascist uh, centralization of power. So they go out and they uh, encourage these private companies to enact policies that are antithetical to states' rights and individual rights. And I, I just think it's uh, it's uh, pretty tacky, uh, but it's beyond tacky. I think it's unconstitutional. And it's uh, really uh, this, this, this 
continuation of an effort to aggrandize power to themselves. And good for uh, Governor DeSantis and the others that are standing up. Well, as we know, the, the, the federalism issue is one issue. Who should make this decision? But we also know that at the state level, uh, local leaders, governors, and, and mayors have different perspectives on this. And, and we've seen what Mayor de Blasio has done. We know that some governors, um, I don't know that we've seen a statewide um, vaccine passport mandate yet, but we might be heading in that direction. What do you think is the proper uh, position for states and local governments to be taking at this point? Well, the correct position is to allow individuals to uh, assess the, their own personal risk and live like free individuals, grown-ups, like mature adults who live in a free society. And uh, the, the improper uh, thing is for governors, mayors, uh, city councils, school boards to get in the way of that. And especially, I mean, you look at what's happening in Florida, for instance, uh, as Governor DeSantis has reported, their hospitalizations are down. Their mortality rate is lowered. They may have a, a slight spike in cases, but he said they're, they're in the age bracket where, where no one is having serious difficulties. He's taking care of the, the most vulnerable. And that's really what has to, has to happen here. Not this blanket lockdown, which is going to cause more emotional and mental health issues. It's gonna cause economic woes. And actually it's a stepping stone to a more authoritarian type of government that the left really wants to see. What is your advice for the American people right now? Who uh, we we are seeing an in, increase in in cases, um, and and we know that perhaps that's affected uh, President Biden's approval rating, which has declined rather precipitously in the last couple months. Though there are other issues as well. But for uh, parents who are sending their kids back to school, for uh, the elderly who are more vulnerable, who might still be nervous about this, based on your review of the of the data and the facts. How should the American public be feeling about where we're at in this pandemic? Well, first of all, I think that you have to resist against the tyrants, okay? That's the first thing. Then the second thing is when you begin looking at the, the data that's out there, what you're gonna find is, is similar to what we saw in Flor what we're seeing in Florida. Um, the states should be looking to care for the most vulnerable, make uh, uh, what they need accessible. If they want the vaccine, make that accessible to them. If they choose to wear a mask, that's their their uh, opportunity to wear a mask. But the reality is what people should be, be feeling is, is fairly comfortable. You can look at the UK data. They had a surge with the Delta virus and then it's already uh, dissipating. That's really what we need to have happen here. We have to get to the bottom of what happened uh, with regard to China. But all in all, we need to be living our lives like we are free men and women who can run forward, make uh, multiple, uh, dif difficult decisions, assess the risk, mitigate uh, against the risk the way we want to. That's what I th think we need to be doing. I, I think that's well stated, and I think that's an important point. And nobody's guaranteed tomorrow, and there are some people who haven't survived this pandemic for reasons unrelated to COVID. You know, all of our days are numbered, and I think it would be unfortunate if we spent the last years of our life just in hiding uh, because we feared something that is ultimately inevitable. But I, I want to ask you another question because uh, Governor Ducey and uh, Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis have taken one approach, but we know that in, in some states, for example, there are nine states, I believe, where the governors are requiring masks in schools. 
do you have any uh, concern that we're, we're creating effectively two different countries where people in different states are going to be living very different lives, not only in schools, but potentially the prospect of people in some states living somewhat normally and people in other states having to basically carry papers with them if they want to watch their kids play basketball or go to a restaurant? Yeah, you're exactly right. So, so two things about that. The, the data is real clear that young, young uh, children don't spread uh, the disease as much. They don't get sick as often. And um, it actually, their pneumonia is, is uh, far more uh, dangerous to children than, than the COVID cases. So that's point one. Point two is when you start talking about different Americas, you're exactly right. And I look at this all the time. How do we get back together? We've, we're, we're divided politically. Um, we're divided on so many of these issues, diametrically opposed. And when you and, and when you take the additional issue of this COVID and how these some of these states want to handle it, they want an authoritarian lockdown Marxist approach to how they how they handle the COVID. And others want a uh, free American style way of of uh, uh, letting people be personally responsible for themselves. That's two very different worlds. Those that think the state should solve every problem, those that think that individuals should be uh, solving those problems. I'm not sure, Joseph, how we get back together. And um, it may be some time before we can ever bridge that gap again. Yeah, they are different words, worlds, and philosophically, they've been different worlds for a while, but we are seeing it tangibly in ways now that we haven't seen it uh, in centuries in, in America, and I think we have reason to be concerned about what that looks like, but in some ways, it might be instructive as people be able to begin to see the working out of different philosophical approaches to how we, we order ourselves. Now, Congressman Biggs, I want to change the subject a little bit on you uh, because uh, last week, the House voted for the first appropriation bill in 45 years that did not include the Hyde Amendment, which, of course, would prohibit uh, federal funds from being used for abortion. Uh, what are your thoughts on what that means for the way Washington, D.C. is changing? Well, I, I think it, it's typical or epitomizes, if you will, where the, the left has come. I've often believed that the Democrats number one goal is to to um, make abortions totally legal with no restrictions whatsoever, including uh, what they call post-birth abortions, which, which I call infanticide. I think what you saw last week was this, uh, you saw the, the demise and say goodbye to the old Democrat party. Um, I could tell you two years ago, there was only a handful of pro-life Democrats in Washington, D.C. They're gone now. And the, the far-left radical uh, pro-abortion, pro-infanticide uh, Democrats now control that party. I, I do not believe that they can keep the blue-collar worker and people who say that, that, uh, they, that they're pro-life um, and want to be Democrat. It just won't happen. So I would say so long to the, to the traditional Democrat party, it is gone perhaps forever. And what you're seeing, too, with regard to the life issue is that it is so radicalized right now uh, it, because, Joseph, it wasn't just the Hyde Amendment, of course. Um, they wanted to get rid of the Mexico City policy. They, um, they basically want to make abortion uh, on demand, the, the, the law of the land. And don't forget, you've got a case going before the Supreme Court pretty soon here that's going to, to make a ruling on the Mississippi case. That's right. And to underscore just how big the change has been on the abortion 
issue within the Democratic Party in 1976, 107 House Democrats voted in favor of the Hyde Amendment. And this year, I believe there was one Democrat, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Cuellar in, in the committee that voted for the Hyde Amendment, but ultimately he even he voted for final passage without the Hyde Amendment. But we've gone from uh, a Democratic Party where 107 uh, voted for the Hyde Amendment to now um, one, it seems, in the entire Democratic caucus. So that is that is a significant change. You know, and, and Speaker Pelosi is, is leading this, um, and she, uh, a self-proclaimed devout Catholic, um, she has she's driving the train on this abortion issue, and her archbishop Salvador uh, Cordelioni said that no one can claim to be a devout Catholic and condone the killing of innocent life, let alone have the government pay for it. Uh, do you think that this is Speaker Pelosi? Is this something she thinks about, or is it just not part of her calculation that what she's doing publicly is so in conflict with what her church says publicly? But I, it's impossible at this point, looking at all of the bad decisions I think Nancy Pelosi's made over the last, oh, I don't know, decades of her uh, political career, um, to, to just get a feel for what she's doing. But I will just tell you this. The one thing you can always be certain of is that Speaker Pelosi wants power. And that the, now that the left and the uh, anti-life Democrats control um, they will determine where her power is. So she's she's making a, a political calculation rather than a theological calculation, would be my guess. And um, uh, I, 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 I think it's inexcusable. I'm a, I'm a pro-life guy. It is my litmus test for every political uh, office that you can hold. And so I, I don't know. I think she may be just uh, making a political calculation rather than a spiritual spiritual one. And we thank you for your calculation and your stand for life. Congressman Biggs, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, we are going to talk to Senator Josh Hawley about infrastructure, or is it something more, right after the break. For centuries, the Bible has inspired humanity and shaped the very world we live in. But how do we know this book is the Word of God and not merely the words of men? What we believe about the Bible is based on what we believe about its source. The God Who Speaks explores the evidence of the Bible's inspiration and authority through some of the world's most respected biblical scholars. We have essentially a dual authorship. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans. It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. He says, we saw this, and that sets the Bible apart from almost everything else in the ancient world and its religious pantheon of gods and goddesses. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. Here's a moment of hope for your home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Have you ever watched a mother hen cover her chicks to provide them with safety? Dad and moms have the same responsibility of providing a safe haven for their families. It's a huge challenge in this crazy world where things are upside down. Listen to Psalm 91, verse 4. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Teach your children that in God's word we find a safe place. God says, I will go before you to be your shield, covering, and protection. I will keep you. How much safer can a person be than in the safety of God's care? 
Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace, including evangelism with integrity, devotions, articles, and more at hopeforthehome.org. This has been a moment of hope for your home. Dan Celia of Financial Issues. I think income ultimately is the most important thing that we protect. I know one thing, and I know this from sitting across a lot of tables from a lot of people over the years, that at some point in time, maybe it's 75, maybe it's 85, there will be a point in time where the only thing you care about is how much income you have coming in. Don't let your portfolio be 100% subject to the volatility in the markets or dependent upon the market. Shore up some permanent income along with Social Security and your maybe a pension. Have some charitable gift annuity to shore that up. I hope you'll call the AFA Foundation today and find out more detail about a charitable gift annuity. Call and speak with a representative of the AFA Foundation at 800-326-4543, extension 345. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home in for Tony today. It's been less than two days since the draft of the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill was released, and we're still digging through its 2,702 pages. But a number of Senate Republicans are already raising alarms for a number of reasons. Joining me now to talk about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and what the problems are with it is U.S. Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. Senator Hawley, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me. Well, we uh, my first question for you, why is there social experimentation in the infrastructure bill? <laughs> you know, it's a great question. I think the answer is that this bill isn't about infrastructure. This is about the woke politics of the left. And this bill is part of their woke left-wing social agenda. You see it with this gender identity language that is in this bill. You see it with the Green New Deal that is in this bill. You see it with their quotas for this, that, and the other that's in this bill. So this is really about their woke left-wing agenda. It's about forcing that agenda on the American people. That's why Joe Biden is so enthusiastic about it, and it's why I'm opposing it. Are there components of this infrastructure bill? Because again, most of us, when we think infrastructure, we think roads and highways, we think the parts of government that we're supposed to agree on, right? There are some things government should do, they should help us build highways. And when we think infrastructure, that's what we think about. Are there things about this bill that there would be general agreement upon, but for the social policy? Well, you would think that if this bill were actually just to focus on roads and bridges, waterways in my state, the state of Missouri, uh, that that would be something that we could agree on. But that, that's not what this bill is. And that's why I say I don't think it really is an infrastructure bill. It's been hijacked by the left to become a, a left-wing, woke social project. And it's fueled and funded by pork barrel spending. So what you have is a bill that's going to cost over a trillion dollars for the working people of this country. And what's it funding? It's funding gender identity projects. Literally, that's in the bill. What's it funding? It's funding getting rid of every school bus in America and replacing it with uh, electric vehicles. It's funding other elements of the Green New Deal across the country. I mean, that's the priorities. Those are the priorities of this bill. And that's why I'm going to vote no, and I hope that every Republican does. 
Now, this is a big bill. It's 2,700 pages. I would understand if you hadn't had digested every word of this, but how exactly are they trying to um, integrate gender identity into what they still are calling an infrastructure bill? <laughs> yeah, the great part about that is it's in the section about uh, digital infrastructure, so about broadband. And that just shows you that, that the Democrats here and the White House, uh, who are the principal writers, drafters of this bill, are, are willing to, to hijack any and every portion of it. So in the section ostensibly about digital infrastructure, broadband, there's gender identity language, there's gender identity tracking that goes on here. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this bill is chock full of woke left-wing projects in every title of the bill and every aspect of the bill. And I guess it should come as a surprise because, again, Joe Biden and his team negotiated it. Biden is all for it, and it enacts his left-wing agenda. And I do think it's interesting how much, and we talk about gender identity, I don't know how broadband necessarily um, would be transphobic. I don't even know if that's the allegation. <laughs> but it is strange that uh, that Biden, uh, being the generation that he is in, has, has taken this gender issue and made it such a passion project of his as he apparently has. Now, you joined six other Republican senators in a statement uh, where you referred to this essentially as a liberal wish list. Um, what other things, in addition to the, the gender identity component of this bill, uh, trouble you most? Well, I mean, take the Green New Deal elements that are in the bill. I mean, all kinds of investments in Green New Deal projects, climate change projects. Then there's, uh, there's money spent here to uh, tear down uh, uh, racist highways, quote-unquote, uh, who knew that highways could be racist, but apparently they are. So this bill, again, is chock full of the Democrats' agenda. It is chock full of their of their CRT, their critical race theory agenda, in terms of what is inspiring the, their, their policies here and the rhetoric behind it. It's chock full of their social agenda. It's chock full of the Green New Deal agenda. And it's all paid for with pork barrel spending. I mean, this is going to be over a trillion dollars in spending, and they're just warming up because part two is coming next week. Where they want to spend another three trillion, so it is it is leftist politics fueled by pork barrel spending. Now, on that point about spending, your colleague Senator Lee from uh, Utah has taken on the spending component of this pretty directly. And you mentioned the fact that this is one trillion, but next week we got three trillion, and not to mention the other trillions that have been spent uh, in in an emergency context, allegedly uh, over the last year and a half because of COVID. Why is it that so few people seem to be concerned about how much money we're spending in Washington, D.C. anymore? Well, probably because a lot of people don't know about it. But I think if they knew what we were spending it on, or more exactly what Congress is spending it on the White House, they would be stunned. And that's why I think it's so important to do the kind of reporting that you're doing. It's why it's important to read these bills, by the way, because you wouldn't know any of this based on the press releases from the White House or from people who are in support of this bill. But if you actually take the time to read the 2,700 pages, what you'll find is that this is a woke left-wing bill and that the spending is really in service to that agenda. And that's just not something that I can support. I think we can do so much better than this. I mean, the bottom line is this is the totally the wrong agenda for the country. What the country needs to be focused on is rebuilding our economy, getting working class jobs back in this country, getting this economy growing again, getting inflation down so that people can actually afford to put food on the table, for heaven's sake. That's not what this does. This doesn't do any of it. This just pursues the Democrats' leftist agenda. 
Now, this bill, all the headlines about it refer to it as the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And it's just kind of become unofficially part of the title. But you're raising these concerns. What's your sense of uh, the Republicans in your caucus? Uh, are your concerns shared? Is there going to be uh, widespread or even unanimous opposition to this when it finally comes up for a vote? Well, I sure hope so. I sure hope that any Republican who is worried about the leftist agenda of the Democrat Party, the hard left woke agenda, their cultural social agenda, will say no to this bill. I'd hope that would be every Republican. I would hope that anybody who's concerned about massive pork barrel spending in service of this kind of woke politics would say no to this bill. So we'll see. I don't know what the final vote would be. I just think it's so important to get the facts out there and to let people know what's really in this bill and to say we can do so much better than this. And I hope that Republicans will rally and take a stand and say no to the Biden agenda and yes to a better agenda for the American people. Senator Josh Hawley, thank you so much for taking your time and thanks for your uh, standing for what is good and true in the Capitol. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we will continue to track this story. Is it a Trojan horse? I mean, it sure looks like it, which is why uh, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of opposition can be generated in the Senate. Now, uh, stay with us. Coming up, vaccine passports are coming to New York City. What does this mean for the people there? We'll talk about it. After Making the most of your money. Here's Dan Celia on American Family Radio. China products are running into logistical problems like everybody else. No containers, no movement on the ports to get things out. The containers primarily due to hoarding at ports all around the world of manufacturing goods, I believe somewhat intentional in squeezing supply chains as much as they possibly can, as they are seeing a great benefit of that to their bottom lines. This goes from every company, clothing company, tech company, manufacturing corporations, automobiles and such are seeing great bottom lines as a result of this squeeze. It looks like Europe seems to be stabilizing somewhat. Good opportunity to take advantage of some possibly some international stocks. Consumer behavior is changing. More reports about this, and this is a concern. It's been a concern of mine for six months, and now reaching the concern of others. Consumer spending is gonna to continue to change, and I give it about two months before it really starts to impact business sentiment. We'll have to wait and see, but one thing, there is a lot of news out there that is taking liberal agenda of the Biden administration out of the news. It's going to help them to get this agenda moving forward, which will be good for the Eurozone and many others. But it's not going to be good for American ingenuity, American economy, and our American freedoms. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Look for his podcast at AFR.net. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. 
Enjoy that conversation with Senator Holly about the infrastructure bill. And if you'd like to get more information about it and also know how to contact your legislators, go to frcaction.org slash infrastructure. Lots of information about the bill, why it's not really about infrastructure, and also how to contact your legislators and let them know what you think about the bill. Again, it's frcaction.org slash infrastructure. Now, much of the media's attention has been on the news surrounding New York Governor Andrew Cuomo following the release of state of the state attorney general's report on the investigation into sexual harassment claims against the governor. But that's not the only big news coming out of the Empire State. Yesterday, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced the key to NYC pass program. It's a vaccine passport initiative that will bar unvaccinated individuals from entering restaurants, gyms, and entertainment venues in the Big Apple. This is a miraculous place, full, literally full of wonders. And if you're vaccinated, all that's going to open up to you. You'll have the key, you can open the door. But if you're unvaccinated, unfortunately, you will not be able to participate in many things. That's the point we're trying to get across. It's time for people to see vaccination as literally necessary to living a good and full and healthy life. Are vaccines really the key to people living a full and healthy life? Joining me now to talk about the news coming from New York is Seth Barron, contributor for the Manhattan Institute's City Journal and the managing editor of The American Mind. He's also author of The Last Days of New York, which came out this past June. Seth, welcome to Washington Watch. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, give me your high-level take on Mayor de Blasio's announcements about this new and I, I allegedly exciting key to NYC pass program. Yeah, I don't know who's so excited about it, but I mean, look, it's very controversial. Uh, I mean, we, I guess we have to acknowledge that you know we do have spread of the of the virus, uh, and it's up. Though hospitalizations and deaths in the city are not particularly uh, you know higher, uh, so I don't really know why they're doing this move particularly, but certainly other mayors, including Democrat mayors, are not, you know, have, like the mayor of Boston said that she thought that this was like, you know, something out of slavery days. Uh, and it certainly strikes people uh, the wrong way. I mean, it, it kind of has a real mark of the beast feel to it. <laughs> Uh, there, there are other analogies I think we could make as well, and I really am kind of interested in uh, uh, the, the practical part of this past program that's been uh, created. Uh, what does this actually look like? Are they uh, going to ask restaurants to like check papers or give blood tests before they go into the restaurant? How do you enforce something like this? No clue. And you know, this is uh, this is another one of the problems with De Blasio and his his initiatives. I mean, a lot of the times. What progressive uh, leaders like de Blasio do is invent new burdens for small businesses uh, to, in order to carry out you know, the, the, the progressive agenda. And it just becomes a burden on business. Uh, and then the, the leaders can pretend like they've done something great. I think a lot of restaurateurs and movie theaters are asking, what are they supposed to do, like turn people away? Do people have to show a cell phone? Do they have to actually bring their card with them? Is a picture okay? Uh, what about kids? What about people who maybe there's medical reasons they can't get the vaccine? It's a no. None of the details have been worked out. It's unclear how it's supposed to happen, and I think it's probably going to be a huge mess. 
And there's obviously major civil liberties issues involved too. So, I, you know, I guess from a from a negative point of view, this this seems like it's a first step towards implementing some kind of China-style social credit system. You know, what's to stop them from, uh, you know, saying, "Oh, well, now your your account looks like it's been blocked because you uh, said something nasty on Twitter about it." About, vi about the virus and the vaccine. Um, it, it seems like it's a not a great precedent to be setting, honestly. Yeah. Well, I think the good news is we don't have a lot of experience with this. The bad news is that we're getting experience with this, and hopefully it's something we learn from and kind of reject rather quickly. How are New Yorkers responding to this news? Well, you know, some New Yorkers, the types who, you know, love their masks and wish that we could have a lockdown year round, um, you know, they, they love it. But, you know, a lot of people are pretty upset. Uh, there's gonna be a rally uh, outside uh, Gracie Mansion the day before the, the new program launches uh, in protest. I, I don't think it's gonna um, be, be rolled out smoothly. I think a lot of people are gonna be resisting and, you know, I've spoken to people who already are like, well, I'm, I'm going to leave. I mean, I don't want to be in a place where these kinds of mandates are in effect, especially when there's other parts of the country that are relatively you know, a lot more free and they're not going to force you to get a shot. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very odd. Yeah, we did discuss that with uh, Congressman Andy Biggs at the beginning of the program, uh, the two different worlds that are be being created in, in red and blue states and in some cases red and blue cities. Now, do you have any sense that this is something that's going to catch on? Have other cities been inspired uh, to do uh, what Mayor de Blasio has done? I haven't heard of any. Uh, like I said, the mayor of Boston rejected it like in extraordinary terms. Uh, saying that it would discriminate against um, non-white people and minorities. I'm not exactly sure how she came to that conclusion, but, you know, that factor inserts itself into basically any public policy discussion. So I'm sure that that will become an issue in New York, too. Uh, I, I have no idea. This is really uncharted territory, and I don't think anybody knows how it's going to play out. Well, we will follow up with you on this. Seth Barron, thank you so much for your time and helping us understand the craziness in New York City. Coming up, we're going to talk about the whistleblower teacher from Rhode Island who's talking about what CRT means in the schools. Stay with us. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. 
Friendships is offering an exciting opportunity for young adults who want to grow in their walk with God, become physically fit, and learn relief ministry while serving in the Middle East. This is an amazing opportunity to serve God and experience Israel. Check out Seahawks one-year scholarship program at friendships.org or call 337-433-5022. That's 337-433-5022. The next session begins August 19th. Hello, I'm Don Hawkins, here to tell you about Encouragement Live, 55 minutes of industrial strength radio encouragement featuring resourceful guests, plus practical biblical insights to help you face life's challenges. We'll be taking your phone calls, so plan to join us for Encouragement Live, Saturdays at 7.05 p.m. Central, 8.05 p.m. Eastern, here on American Family Radio. It gives an impetus to share your faith when you think you've got answers to objections that you expect people to bring up. The American Family Studios video series, Intro to God's Revelation, featuring Dr. Richard Howe, shows how God has revealed Himself in nature and His Word, and how we can rightly understand what God has said. These truths are just a part and parcel of the Christian life. It isn't just for the professional clergy. Learn the fundamentals of how to approach and understand the Bible in an age of skepticism. This six-week video curriculum is perfect for your Sunday school class or study group, and it can prepare you to give a defense of God's Word and how He speaks to us in nature. Knowing whether and how God communicates is a safeguard against false claims about God communicating. Intro to God's Revelation, DVDs and workbook are available for purchase at afastore.net or call 877-927-4917. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. We have covered the issue of critical race theory quite a bit here on Washington Watch. And we've been reporting on all of the conflicting messages we've been hearing about CRT. Now, some are claiming that it's not taught in K-12 schools, while others are saying it is and it should be taught in schools. Well, my next guest will tell you that CRT is in fact infiltrated our public schools. And she has seen firsthand how the teaching brings division into the classroom and creates hostility between kids. Joining me now to talk about this is Ramona Bessinger, who has been a public school teacher for the past 22 years, with the past seven in Providence, Rhode Island. Ramona, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Now, we are glad to have you and and greatly appreciate your courage because I I know that that is what's required for you to do what you've been doing from the place that you've been doing it. And uh, tell us first, as a teacher, observing what's happening in the classroom, what have you seen with respect to critical race theory? Well, what I've seen specifically is the complete authoritarian takeover of our school system. Um, Specifically, I saw all of our vetted um, historical texts removed from our our classroom, literally picked up, taken out, and removed. We were told that um, we could not teach um, our former novels, our former historical texts. Everything was removed and replaced with a curriculum package, a curriculum platform that included hundreds and hundreds of leaflet-style booklets. Um, So that was one piece of the curriculum uh, shift that took place. 
Additionally, our novels, our core novels were replaced with um, New York Times bestseller novels, which I've never seen before because typically we have, um, you know, vetted literature that is uh, historically accurate, objective, and vetted, you know, uh, vetted scholarly pieces of literature as well. All of those have been replaced with these um, bizarre novels and and mini mini books as well. With the uh, and all of them have the exact same narrative. Now, when this change was made with the curriculum, did they give an explanation for why they were making this change? Yes, I, I did ask several of my administrators exactly. Where have all our books gone, the previous literature? Where has that gone? And why are these books seemingly all the same and with this same sort of narrative, the oppressed versus oppressor narrative, uh, Black folks, the sort of historical perspective from the slave, uh, a slave perspective. And the response was, well, we would like children to be able to relate to themselves and see themselves in the literature. So this this alarmed me a great deal. This worries me on many, many levels because for children to simply see themselves as victims throughout history is one, historically accurate, and two, a great you know breeding ground to create animosity in young people so that they, you know, they're being sort of trained or indoctrinated, if you will, to to believe that in some way white people are victimizers or oppressors. And they, they, as African-American children, are victims of that oppression. Now, you as a teacher presumably have some control of, of how things get rolled out in your classroom. But can you tell me the kinds of things that you're no longer allowed to teach that previously you would have taught? Well, everything. We were essentially mandated to teach a very scripted lesson plan that had basically weekly lesson embedded lessons in a timeline that we were to follow. So um, basically, there was very, very little, if no input. These curriculum platforms came complete with books and projects and uh, literacy coaches that guided us um, as to how you know how we were to roll these. Uh, these projects and these books out to the students. So basically mandated is more is a more appropriate word. What kind of impact have you seen on your students as this curriculum has been rolled out? The impact has been alarming and that is why I'm speaking out. Um, what I noticed was over the course of the year, students started, um, I, I started to sense that maybe there was a more of a mistrust um, from students um, directed towards white people in general. And in fact, my students would call me America at one point. It was an alarming thing after 22 years of, of teaching to have young people suddenly, you know, believe some sort of narrative that America was inherently bad and that the, our history is, is inherently bad, starting from the 1776 Revolutionary War onward. So that transition was was clear. 
you've raised some concerns. What responses did you get from the administrators in your school or in your school district? Uh, the, the response was swift. Um, I tried to teach the Declaration of Independence very early on in the year, and that was met with a great deal. Uh, well, basically, I was written up for teaching the Declaration of Independence in relation to um, an argumentative essay. I didn't understand early on in the year what, what was happening and why teaching the Declaration of Independence was such a problem. So that was uh, met with... Um, with uh, being, you know, I was written up. I, I just, you can't even, I'm embarrassed to even say this after all my years of teaching. I, it was say, shocking to me. Say yeah. a little bit more about that because that does sound unbelievable that, it, that yeah. a teacher would be punished for teaching the Declaration of Independence. Now, were they more specific? Did they say you may not read the document? Was there an approach that they didn't want to take to the Declaration of Independence? Can you be more specific about what their concerns were? Uh, there wasn't clear. I wasn't made clear to me. I was given the um, green light to go ahead and teach an essay, argumentative essay, um, with relation to the Declaration of Independence. And after about two weeks into that unit of study, my principal uh, wrote me up without any real um, clarity as to why I was being written up, even after hearing from the teacher leader that I was given permission to. to I mean. You know, there was nothing wrong with what I was doing, and there was certainly, you know, everything right about what I was doing, and somehow that was, but this is what is happening to a lot of educators, and you may notice that throughout the United States, there is a huge teaching shortage, and that teaching shortage is because teachers are being bullied, they're being harassed, and rather than come in and speak out, I think a lot of teachers are just electing to leave the profession. It's really, uh, you know, alarming for a lot of us as educators and as, as a mother, I will say that I'm seeing the same thing in my children's school. We should all be very, very concerned. What kind of response are you getting from your colleagues as you've taken this public position? A lot of, you know, hush, hush kind of uh, discussions in secret where many of my colleagues in Providence schools were I had expressed um, concern over these books being historically inaccurate, um, that the narrative was somehow inaccurate and, and worry that these books were going to create violence amongst the students. But the problem with um, teaching is that you have very little power over these sorts of discussions or objections. If you object, and many teachers will attest to this, if you object to um, this sort of change in curriculum and this sort of statewide initiative that that was coming from the Rhode Island Department of Education. It's often met with, you know, being sent, being centered or, or being, you know, the spotlight being put on you and um, being singled out rather was the word I was searching for, being singled out and being intimidated into submission or, or silence, or you just quit. This is the case. This is what we're seeing throughout the nation. Well, Ramona Bessinger, 
Uh, I know that what you are doing does take courage, and, and I speak uh, for a lot of people I know when I say thank you for doing it, um, because there is a cost socially, hopefully yes. not professionally for you, but I know that there is a cost emotionally in many other ways, but I, I yes. also know that, that courage is contagious, and because of your example, I know others will be inspired to do the same, even if it is difficult, and it's important uh, perhaps mostly because it is difficult, and so thank you so much for, uh, for your your stand and also thanks for joining us today and sharing your story really appreciate it thank you so much thank you for having me now we're going to continue th this conversation about crt and also talk about how president biden's pick for the head of the department of education's civil rights office is is involved in this critical race theory discussion joining me to have that conversation is meg kilgannon who's a senior fellow for education studies at family research council welcome back to the program meg hello joseph it's great to see you well, it's good to see you. I know that you just heard that conversation uh, we had with Ramona. What's your reaction to that? I just am so grateful for her that she is taking the stand that she's taking. Um, what what a beautiful um, testament to courage she is. Um, and I am just astounded at all the parallels you can draw. I mean, the treatment that she is getting from the faculty at her school is treatment that if students treated other students that way, singling someone out and putting pressure on them and bullying them, the students would be disciplined, hopefully, for that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. And yet here you have the administration of the school behaving that way. And I guess the, the chief example that they're following in that line of bullying comes from, you know, this, the Catherine Lehman herself, who was just this yesterday um, not approved as the assistant secretary of civil for civil rights at the US Department of Education because these these curricula and this this teaching pedagogy that that um, that Ramona was objecting to are very much the fruit of the leadership of people like Catherine Lehman and this ideology that is critical race theory now, and I, I want everybody who's watching or listening to this to understand that, that what uh, Ramona Bessinger is dealing with in Providence, Rhode Island is not random, and it's not an accident. And in many ways, it's the fruit of elections. And when you have administrations, and, and again, tell us a little bit about the background, because I'm sure there are some people watching who don't know the name Catherine Lehman. So give us some background quickly on where did she come from? How did she come to be the nominee? And why should people, people be concerned with having her in the Department of Education? She, uh, Ms. Lehman was in the Department of Education in the Obama years, and she was one of the authors of the famous Dear Colleague letter, for example, that um, promoted transgenderism in public schools and didn't just promote it, but required it on the pain of losing your federal funds. Um, before that letter, she, she had issued edicts around school discipline policies. And um, they were, her, her metrics for the judgment of those school discipline policies were simply on along racial lines. And now, Joseph, I know that you would agree with me that if you have a situation where black students are being punished more harshly than white students for the same disciplinary infractions, we would obviously see that as a civil rights violation and we would want that sort of thing corrected. But that is not the, the approach that she was taking. 
um, whatsoever with, with her guidelines. Um, she really served to, to weaponize the Office of Civil Rights. And she, she's representative of a whole class of people in the Obama administration in the offices of civil rights all over the federal government who did just that. Instead of seeing the civil rights offices as a place for people to come to when they had a grievance, they used the offices of civil rights as an outreach mechanism to uh, because people were subject to their uh, purview. And so it's a it's a, just a totally different mindset. It's uh, it is absolutely uh, you know part of the uh, critical race theory problem and the, this mentality of the use of government for power. I, I want to make sure uh, people understand the the disciplinary uh, the school discipline issue that you were referring to. Now, essentially, wasn't she objecting and essentially wanting schools to create racial? quotas for right. their disciplinary actions so that they did so they disciplined people proportionate to the race that they represented in the school and so in other words you, you had to consider somebody's race before you determined whether a disciplinary action should be taken against them absolutely absolutely and what that ended up doing was um, you know teachers just had no backup for disciplinary problems in their classroom uh, because it doesn't matter what color you are. If you're disrupting the class, then you need to be dealt with. You need to be removed from the class or, you know, some, some sort of intervention needs to happen so that you as a student can be ready to learn and not distract others who are ready to learn. But this is not, th that whole conversation wasn't happening under this paradigm that was set up. It was all about how many how many minority students are being disciplined versus how many white students are being disciplined and if those two numbers were in any way in disagreement or conflict then you had obviously a systemically racist situation and you know the 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 unrest ensued from there which is a terrible way to deal with discipline now meg we have very uh, short time now but she did not advance in the senate her confirmation has not been confirmed yet and that's something of a surprise what do we think is going to happen well the the senate committee deadlocked 11 to 11. so in order for her to advance she will have to be taken directly to the senate floor uh, for a four hours of debate and a straight up senate vote and so it'll be interesting to see if they are willing to go that far for her um, there have been other nominees who were too political to to advance and they um you know withdrew their names and so that we, we hope that's the case for her we will follow up with you may kilgan and senior fellow for education studies thank you so much for your time thank you and thank you for joining us today on washington watch we're going to track this and a whole bunch more tomorrow on washington watch Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.